Where's Fielder? He's gone to the dog. An area where coon hunting is really thought by many to have been a thing of the past. But uh, today we're going to go up to the great state of Connecticut. Uh, we're going to visit with my longtime friend, David Smith. David is a very interesting guy. He's a fellow that I liked immediately the first time I met him, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, that first meeting and how our friendship has grown over the years. Uh, but David, as many of you will remember, is uh, one of the hosts and producer of the TV show called Tailgate Adventures that aired a few years ago. Very popular. David, as many of you may know, also uh, founded the, uh, I believe it's called National Tree Dog Alliance. We're going to talk to him about that uh, in a segment that we're going to call some some of the things that didn't work out so well in his career and mine. Uh, We're going to talk about his walker dogs. We're also going to talk about his son, Alex, who's become very much involved in competition hunting and uh, received a special award from UKC. We're just going to have a great time in this episode. We're going to talk to David Smith today about uh, what it's like to live up in the land of the Connecticut Yankees. And uh, uh, so stay with us. We've got a great podcast for you today. And let's get on with it. Welcome to Gone to the Dogs. Man, we've gone a long way today, all the way up to the northeast, up to the New England states, where I have hooked up with a longtime friend here that I met back in my AKC days, I believe. Uh, and uh, I'm just really excited to have Dave Schmidt with us today. Dave, how are you doing? I'm doing just fine, Steve. Glad to be here. Well, it's really good to have you. And uh, I know I think we talked a little bit at Autumn Oaks. I Ever since I started this podcasting thing a couple years ago, I've wanted to talk to you because I think you have an awful lot to say. Uh, You're an interesting guy. You've done a lot of stuff, and I want to share that with our listeners. That's the main reason. But uh, when we were talking at Autumn Oaks, I think you mentioned to me uh, about uh, you thought maybe you were one of maybe 10 coon hunters in the whole. <laughs> did you say that or did I did I make that up? No, that's about right. There's probably, uh, I don't know, estimating eight to 10 coon hunters in Connecticut, at least, uh, you know, the guys active that you can find at an event somewhere. I got you. Well, you know, I, I always like to do a little backstory on these these podcasts are when I have a guest, and uh, uh, there was a book uh, that was written back in 1889, I believe, a novel by Mark Twain, and it was called A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, and I thought it was pretty interesting that the ca- the main character in that book was a guy named Hank Morgan uh, that happened to be an engineer, and uh the story goes that he suffered a blow to the head and that kind of put him into this time capsule deal where he went back uh, to the times of, of King Arthur in England. 
And you and I were talking before the podcast. You said uh, we're talking about how you got into Connecticut. What did you tell me? Well, so, yeah, I'm an engineer as well. And uh, but uh, I guess I don't know if it's a time warp, but uh, I do feel out of place here. Um, Born and raised on a farm in northern Indiana. Um, Certainly from a hunting perspective, it's drastically different uh, between Indiana here and uh, New England. Yeah, for sure. I think you told me you must have had a, a somebody hit you on the head to convince you <laughs> to go to Connecticut. Well, let's go back to your background, and then we're going to talk about what you're doing now and why you are in Connecticut. And uh, I think you've really committed to that area from what I've been able to follow with building a new home and, and all of that. But uh, you haven't been dissuaded from your uh, your love of hounds and hunting when most people, I think, would have just thrown up their hands and given up. But give us a little background of who Dave Smith Smith is. I always want to – I just did a podcast with Randy Smith up in Pennsylvania. But, uh, Dave, tell us about uh, your background there in Indiana and uh, bring us up to the present. Sure. So I I grew up on a dairy farm in uh, northern Indiana, Um, so I'm kind of a – well, for people out here, I'm the redneck, all right? I'm the redneck in the office that talks funny and, and uh, has a little different perspective. But uh, I got into coon hunting. Oh, geez, there was, a, there was a, several of us uh, in fifth or sixth grade. We read where the red fern grows, all right? And you can't hardly be a you know, red-blooded young man uh, living in the United States and, and hear that story about that boy and his hounds and not want to get into coon hunting. So there was... I don't know, four or five of us that uh, got into it, you know, that's, you know, when we were 10, 11 years old. So, uh, geez, 34 years ago now. And, uh, I'm the only one still doing it, still coon hunting. But, um, I was, uh, started off with some, you know, Finley river blood. Um, being from Indiana, I was, uh, my first real coon dog. I went through some great dogs, uh, from different hound traders, that didn't really mount to much, but, uh, my first real coon dog was a Finley river dog. Uh, top side was actually a, a stud out of Beaver Lake lightning, you know, so magic was there from Northern Indiana as well. Uh, pretty famous in my neck of the woods in Northern Indiana. So that was my first coon dog. Um, had a lot of different breeds over the years. Uh, I, I actually started competition hunting with a, uh, a friend from the local coon hunters club that hauled me around. Um, as I said, I grew up on a dairy farm, so my dad really didn't have a whole lot of time for fishing and hunting. So any kind of hunting I did was really with somebody else. And, um, uh, his name was Steve Thomas. Steve Thomas hauled me around to coon hunts Friday nights and Saturday nights. He had daughters. So I was his uh, adopted son, if you will. And, uh, I guess there was, uh, Steve got on the second shift and, uh, we were going to some hunts and people knew that and they started asking well, Steve, you know, how do you keep these dogs in shape? He said, well, that little redneck kid that I haul around here, he hunts the hair off my dogs for me. And a couple of guys started asking, well, you know, would he hunt my dog? And so I started a little business, uh, you know, I don't know, I was probably 13, 14 years old, and I started coon hunting dogs for people. So through junior high and high school, where everybody else was, uh, you know, flipping burgers to make, uh, you know, some ends meet and some money for the weekend and gas money, I made money hunting dogs for people. So over the years, I hunted every breed imaginable, every, you know, crossbred dog. And uh, I've pretty much stuck with uh, the train walkers. And so that's still what I hunt today. 
Well, that kind of uh, contradicts what I told the kids at the PKC Youth Championship a few years ago when I spoke to them. I said, now, I know that each one of you guys out and gals out there think that you're going to be a coon hunter. You're going to be a professional coon hunter. You know, you're going to make a living coon hunting. And I told them, I said, look, here's what you need to do. You need to get that education. You need to go to school. You need to put that first. Then when you get that parchment and get a good job, you can buy that truck and that fancy dog box and that big light and those boots and everything else you want, and you can coon hunt. But I would not hitch my wagon to the star of being a professional coon hunter. But here you are, an entrepreneur, as a actually a, a teenager or preteen, yeah. maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess uh, I wouldn't say I made a living at it, but it covered my, uh, you know, my entry fees on the weekend and helped uh, the guy that was hauling me around help pay for some gas. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's a cool story for sure. Uh, now, where in Indiana were you from? You said northern Indiana, right? Yeah, I was born and raised uh, just outside of Culver, Indiana, which uh, is about uh, an hour southwest of South Bend, Mishawaka, Indiana. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you weren't too far from me when I was up there in the Kalamazoo area there yep. and all. Did you hunt out of the Wyatt Club any when you were up there? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yeah. hunted out of the Wyatt Club quite a bit. Um, and then I I traveled around a little bit from my career and lived back in northern Indiana before I moved to Connecticut, and Wyatt mm -hmm. Club was another one of my stomping grounds yeah. as well. I, I grew up at the Fulton County Coon Hunters there in Ladders Ford, Indiana. So right. that's really that's really where I learned the game. I got you, I got you. Well, when we talk about Wyatt... I always remember my good friend Jim Sizemore that hunted sure. out of that. And Jim was such a great guy and sure hated to lose him. That was one of those that really hit home uh, for me when Jim passed because he was such a witty guy. He used to crack me up. And, and of course, I hunted on several night hunts with him down through the years and all. Well, okay, so uh, our first meeting um, kind of tell me how you transitioned uh, into, well, no, first of all, give me some of your background, your educational background and what you choose chose to do uh, for a living. Yeah, so um, I worked worked in a local factory the summer out of uh, high school, um, and uh, I think that was my dad's uh, plan to teach me that I never wanted to do that again. And so after spending a summer working, uh, you know, in a hot uh, factory uh, welding and doing whatever else they wanted a young man to do, um, I did decide that, you know, I just, uh, it wasn't for me. I was going to find a, an easier go with life. So I went and got my uh, bachelor's. My undergraduate was in mechanical engineering. And I got that from uh, Rose Holman. It's a private uh, engineering school uh, down in Southern Indiana. And then, uh, Got into engineering, and then uh, later in my career, um, took night classes and uh, got my master's in business, and uh, and so now I'm, I guess I'm what you call an executive uh, for a a large CNC distributorship uh, here in New England. Okay, well that's great, and uh, that kind of goes with my plan for those PKC kids. You know, go out there and get that good job, and then you can pretty much do what you want, I guess. Well, you and I first met, I believe, was I with, which registry was I with when you and I first met? Well, so formally, the registry that you were with was AKC. Okay. Informally, I met you when I was 14 years old. You remember that at Autumn Oaks? 
I, I think I told you that story the first time we met. Well, there's been so many stories <laughs> in so many years, Dave. You better re- – I'd like to hear it again. Like my okay. dad would say, my mother would chastise him for telling the story over and over. He said, well, I want to hear it myself again. So sure. uh, <laughs> to share that one with me. Yeah, so um, if you recall, uh, that, that good friend Steve used to haul me around to the hunts, and we were at Autumn Oaks, and I was judging and guiding casts at the local Cunars Club, the Lighters Ford Club. And, uh, you know, I'd memorized uh, all the rules and regulations. In fact, I uh, judged an AKCACHA hunt that year as well as UKC. And we were at Autumn Oaks and we were at a satellite club and they needed a judge. And they said, can anybody here judge? And, uh, you know, Steve once again said, well, that little redneck kid that, that, that comes with me, he says, he's pretty sharp. He could probably judge a cast. So they put me on a cast. And, uh, of course, we needed a guide. And they gave us a guide that turned out was just out of prison. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, the, the first woods we go to, um, we're out there. I think we made one tree, and uh, another dog was split-treed. And then behind us, we hear a ruckus, and there's this truck just flying across this field. And that guy turned to us and says, you don't know me, and took off running. And this guy jumps out of his truck with a shotgun, starts cracking off shotgun rounds. And of course, everybody hits the deck. You know, we got people crawling around in the wheat field and the beans and the ditch. And this guy is parked by our trucks and he's just screaming. He says, I ain't leaving. You guys got to come out here sooner or later. So I get up out of the ditch. And again, I'm 14 years old. I get out of the ditch and I walk towards this guy and I got my hands in the air. You know, I'm like, don't shoot. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I walk up to him and, and explain that, you know, we're on a competition hunt and, you know, we're from all over the country and, and, you know, we were assigned a guide that was supposed to take us to property. He had permission to hunt and clearly that is not what took place. And so I apologized to this guy and he said, so there are other people. He said, I imagine there's some adults. I said, yeah, there's a few adults out there. He says, well, maybe you can coax them out of the woods and get them to these trucks and get on your way. You know, so yeah, I'm not calling the police or anybody, but I want you off my property. And I said, sir, yes, sir, I will take care of it. And then he turned around and said, son, if you were ever back in my neck of the woods, you stop up at that house on the road there and I'll give you permission to hunt out here. <laughs> so we, we ended up going back to the club, getting a different guide and finishing the hunt. The next morning there on the fairgrounds in Richmond, I run into you and I explained the story. And asked you, I said, hey, if we would have all gotten arrested, would UKC have bailed us out? And you chuckled and says, I'm not sure about that, but I would damn sure pass a hat for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that was a great story. And I, and I do remember that. And then I'll, I also had a similar experience, which I won't go into, but it was hunting out of Walker Days uh, out of uh, Warsaw, I believe it was. Uh, and uh, got into a similar situation with a guy that didn't have permission. And <laughs> I thought we were all going to jail, but it, it worked out. Boy, that's yeah. a whole uh, segue into uh, about an hour's worth of how right. to guide a cast or <laughs> right. and maybe how not to guide a cast in the UKC event. Well, I know when I first met you, Dave, you were a kind of a matter of fact guy. You, you know, you had things to say and you knew how to say them. And, uh, uh we talked about a little, uh, 
perhaps a little joint business venture there at that time. I think by the time, if we fast forward to when I was working at AKC, you had already begun your TV show at that time, hadn't you? Yeah, yeah. The TV show was underway. Um, that was uh, Tailgate Adventures. And uh, to your point earlier, that was me making another run at making a living off of coon hunting. And uh, <laughs> boy, I had no idea. I, I thought for sure that uh, you get a TV show, you know, out on some big network and they would pay you, you know, that you were going to be a paid actor. And uh, it wasn't until uh, I talked to a few uh, um, people at Sportsman Channel and Outdoor Channel, a few other uh, you know networks, that I, they explained that you, you have to pay us. <laughs> I said, well, geez, I had no idea that uh, this wasn't about coon hunting and filming. It, it was about running a business. I mean, it you had to find sponsorship. You had to find uh, you know develop commercial advertising. And um, we did uh, Tailgate Adventures for well, it was about three years. Um, mm -hmm. We started out on a small network called In-Country Television. Um, well, quite frankly, it was the most affordable option for us for airtime. And, uh, and that put us on Dish Network and DirecTV. So that was a lot of exposure, and it was on their basic channel. So it was, a, it was not the big-name hunting uh, channel that everybody would tune into, but it was available if we could point people in that direction. And right. then uh, we did that for a, for a full season, um, actually two seasons, and then um, eventually made our way onto Sportsman Channel. And then, uh, of course, with Sportsman Channel, you know, that gave us access to, you know, Comcast and the cable networks as well as satellite television. And we did that for a year. But to tell you how long ago that was, um, that was before high-definition cameras. I mean, they existed, but they weren't a requirement. And... Um, yeah, there was a lot of ups and downs and a lot of lessons learned, and we would have liked to have made a go of it. Uh, myself and, and Joe Newland. Joe Newland was my primary partner. Um, had a couple cameramen, uh, Brian Morrison and, and Shane Smith and Travis Wilkison helped us out from time to time. But uh, Joe and I were the primaries, and ultimately we had to get all new camera gear, all new production equipment, and we just you know just couldn't afford to make a make a go of it at that time. Well, I understand that for sure. You had a big fan in my plot dog, Hoss. Ah. Uh, old Hoss used to love when I'd play tailgate adventures. He'd sit right in front of the TV and wouldn't take his head, uh, his eyes off the TV as long as there were dogs there. He wasn't too much into the to the dialogue and all, but once <laughs> the dogs started treeing or running or whatever, he uh, – he really enjoyed it, and I did too. And I think a lot of people, uh, you know, over the years, I've heard a lot of people talk about that tailgate adventure TV show and how they wished that there was something like that now. Now, this uh, there in the days of uh, of YouTube and all, uh, there are certainly a lot of t uh, coon hunting. Uh, channels out there now but i right. think you guys went at it just like the big boys you know you had a weekly show if i recall where it was yep. it weekly yeah yes yes and you traveled you were on scene with a lot of different uh breeders and hunters and all that that must have been a a tremendous commitment to produce it was yeah yeah it was it was um you know so there, there's a lot of great channels a lot of great shows that i've i've watched um the added pressure being on a network was you had production deadlines, you know? Mm. So once the, we were preparing for a season, there was a stream of episodes that had to be delivered and then of course approved. And if any edits had to be made, you had a real short timeline to get that done. So 
Um, you know, bills had to be paid to the network for airtime and production delivery of episodes. Um, whereas, you know, I think the guys today, um, you know, when you're running your own channel, of course you're deciding, you know, if I don't want to produce right. another TV show for a month, I can take a month off. We didn't have that, uh, that option back then. Right. Right. For sure. Well, I know that it was very much enjoyed and, and it's missed. Are any of those old episodes still out there that people can go back and look at? Yeah, so um, you know our our title sponsor back then was F and T's uh, Fur Harvesters Trading Post up in Michigan. Um, last time I checked on their website, you can still buy the the box set of the first season and the okay. second season. A lot of little short episodes. If you if you look for Tailgate Adventures on YouTube, you can pull up the little you know edited down short episodes that we put out there. I see. Okay, well that's good to know. I'm sure our listeners will want to go back and dig those out and. Uh, pop some corn and sit back and enjoy it. It was a good show. really was. Appreciate All right. It. Well, then uh, let's go come down the road just a little bit here to uh, toward where we are right now. Uh, you got the idea, I believe it was your idea, to produce uh, some type of National uh, Tree Dog Hunters Association. What? Tell us a little bit about that. That was, I believe— uh, what did you call it? The National Hound and Tree Dog Association. Okay. And we spoke about that, I know, on several occasions. And I remember uh, being in the American Cooner Full Cry booth at Autumn Oaks and having you come by and, and, and talk to me about it. And, uh, and you were meeting with the UKC officials, I think, there at that time and all. Uh, tell us, give us a little background on that and where that is now. Well, you know, so I, I guess I was never naive uh, enough to think I could make money, um, you know, coon hunting or producing a TV show. But with the TV show, my goal was really trying to promote the sport. You know, if you watch those outdoor programs, you watch deer hunting and bass fishing, et cetera, et cetera. And there wasn't any hound or tree dogs on there. So my primary goal with the TV show was to promote the sport. And, um, you know, when I realized that, you know, that was more than we could afford, we kind of shifted gears. Um, so again, this was Joe Newell and I put this together and we decided to create a national, you know, hound and tree dog association. Um, again, to promote the sport, um, develop it, you know, maybe at least, uh, organize where we could, uh, you know, maybe help combat some of the, uh, the legislation that's coming against us. Um, and, uh, you know, find some solidarity. And uh, there's certainly a lot of great organizations out there. Um, you know, there's various breed associations, there are various kennel clubs, but there wasn't a, a not-for-profit organization, national organization for hounds and tree dogs, um, a lot of state associations, et cetera. So our thought was, is there a way that we could not reinvent the organization, not the hound association? But is there a way that we can combine forces with all these other great organizations and associations that already existed? And really, we kind of looked at, you know, the, you know, the, uh, the, the Pheasants Forever, Quail Unlimited, Ducks Unlimited. And if you look at those, they're the sum total of their charters, you know. So there's the, there's the national umbrella, but there's all the charters. So those are the fundraisers and the banquets that you go to mm -hmm. as your local charter. So... We incorporated the National Hound Tree Dog Association. We got the the not the 501c3 not for profit status, and then went to organizing, and that meant you know visiting all the breed associations, um, visiting different state associations, and so actually once again I found myself on the road. 
you know, just like tailgate adventures, you're going from state to state, you know, coon hunter and houndsman, um, you know, shaking hands and introducing and trying to tell people what we were up to. And we did have a good deal of success. Um, I was, uh, the president, uh, the primary organizer, um, with, uh, with a very supportive board for about four years. And, um, at the time we actually got, uh, um, several breed associations to join us, several state associations to join us. And so at what we did was we called them affiliate organizations. So if you join the tree and walker breeders and fanciers, you automatically became an affiliate and a member of the National Hound and Tree Dog Association. And then the question was, well, why would we care? Well, certainly there's the care about the sport and finding a way to promote it and protect it. But we also brought to the table discount programs. So we put a discount program that if you're a member of the National Hound and Tree Dog Association, you can get, you know, discounts on lights, um, you know, coon hunting gear, et cetera. So when we went to the various state or breed associations, they said, well, why should we partner with you? And I said, well, through us, you, if nothing else, you can give your, your members an added benefit. So it, it was a kind of a win-win. And we were up to over 4,000 members, not mm. selling individual memberships for the National Hound and Tree Dog Association, but in, you know, organizing these associate relationships with these other breed associations. Um, so I spent four years developing it, organizing it, trying to build it up. And then, uh, you know, quite frankly, I got, uh, I got wore out. I, sure. I got, I got tired of the travel and the sales pitch. And now that we, you know, had some organization and some recognition, um, I decided that, uh, you know, maybe it was time for, a, for a changing of the guard. Um, and, uh, uh buddy Woodbury was uh, kind enough to kind of take the baton. And so, uh, uh, buddy and, uh, some of his friends and, uh, and, and, uh, associates, took over the National Hound Tree Dog Association. So still a large national organization um, with the goal of, you know, doing what we can to pitch in and help, you know, the fight to keep our sport alive. Well, you know, I have some history uh, in those types of organizations, you know, over the years. I know when I was at UKC, I started what we called SCAN, the State Canine Awareness Network. And the idea of that was to try to uh, you know, plug in watchdogs out there all over the country in these local clubs and state associations that would scan the media, the local media, the newspapers, uh, the radio, whatever, any hint of uh, a threat to our right to free cast our hounds uh, a field or hunting dogs, period, a field. Uh, you know, the, we would alert the network, the network would share you know, perhaps if you're in Indiana and you're facing, I know in Michigan, we started the Don't Shoot My Dog campaign, and that uh, was adopted by the Indi Indiana or Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance, I think, in other states. So that was kind of the idea of that. And I did have some, um, you know, uh, experience with that. I remember way back, um, <laughs> People may remember there was somewhat of a feud years ago going on between American Cooner Magazine and United Kennel Club, UKC having their publication called Coonhound Bloodlines, and Fred Miller, who was the president of UKC, and uh, George Slankard, who was the owner and CEO, whatever, of, uh, of uh, American Cooner, uh, they held a meeting in Greencastle, Indiana, at Autumn Oaks, to start a national association. But these 
each of these guys were very strong figures, and they, and they couldn't decide or admit that the other one maybe could have a part in running it. And uh, and they, you know, basically it never got off the ground because what I'll call, and I had respect for these fellows, but it was like an ego thing, I think, you know, who's going to run it? And sure. um, and it never really did uh, materialize, although I think we got cl- close with the scan program at UKC. We developed these little lapel pins or hat pins that you could stick on your hat and had an empty collar to symbolize the fact if, if uh, the antis win, uh, all we're going to have to show for our dogs are the collars they wore. And it was pretty effective, you know, and then I think uh, – as uh, after I left UKC, regrettably they uh, they abandoned that program. But um, anyway, so I can certainly sympath or empathize with you <laughs> for uh, the work that it took and uh, to do uh, all of that, Dave. And and uh, I know that uh, there was a lot of good that came out of that natural. National Association, and I'm sure it's ongoing because I know that Buddy is very, very active, you know, in in uh, attending hearings and speak and being a spokesperson on behalf of hound interests, you know, there in Washington State and Oregon and different places all across the country. I know he's been out to Michigan and to Wisconsin and, and across uh uh, the country, and I believe that they still may have. He may want to correct me, but I believe they still have a program whereby um, you know you can designate a portion of your purchase price that do you supply to an organization that you want to support. So you you did a lot of good there and laid a great foundation. And uh, well, listen, let's talk about uh, number one. You must have a very understanding wife. You haven't talked too much about your family, and I, I'd like to. Uh, I know that your son Alex is is following in your footsteps, and I know you're very proud of him. He had a uh, 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 great uh, time this last year participating in one of the youth programs. Tell us about your family a little bit, and, and about Alex. Yeah, sure. So, um, so my wife uh, is a saint. Um, anybody that has met me knows that my wife is a saint. Um, so yeah, she's been, uh, pretty tolerant of, uh, you know, and supportive of, uh, my hobby and, you know, what at times has been a money pit. Um, to be honest, you know, that was probably another factor in the TV show. Um, I was working full time. Um, I worked for a large, uh, fortune 100 company and was doing a lot of traveling. So I'd come home during the week and then immediately jump in the truck and take off and film a, you know, an episode somewhere. And, you know, that just wears on a, on a young family. So that was certainly a factor. Um, I have two young boys. I got, uh, uh two boys that, uh, are phenomenal, uh, here in, uh, New England. Uh, we discovered lacrosse, you know, I'd heard of it before and, and maybe would recognize if I saw a picture of it, but that's huge out here. And so both of my boys have gotten into that. And, um, my oldest, uh, as you pointed out, Alex, uh, he's my hunting buddy. You know, so if I'm in the tree stand, you, know, you better believe that he's either beside me um, or he's upset that he's not beside me. And uh, the same thing, uh, coon hunting at night. You know, if I'm uh, if it's uh, not a school night, he for sure is going to be uh, in the truck with me. And uh, Alex and I have uh, done quite a bit of hunting together. 
Um, and uh, he helped uh, raise and train the, the Grand Knight champion that we've been campaigning for the last several years. And UKC did something um, phenomenal, and I and I'll, I would be mistaken. I would just be guessing. I don't know how many years back they started their youth program. I know it started off as YEP, uh, the youth education program, and then they rolled into this uh, you know next generation um, spotlight series. That's uh, it's kind of a points race. So not only do they have the youth events that they uh, you know put on at your local clubs. But, uh, you know, I guess it's kind of akin to NASCAR. You know, there's an event, but then there's also the points race. And uh, so he's been going to uh, these various hunts. This started, um, well, two and a half years ago. So last season, um, or a, a year and a half ago, he was still in the junior division. The junior division, I believe, is from five years old to 12. And so he started off in the junior division, and we went to the, the Rhode Island State Youth Championship, and he won it. And uh, I had to almost talk him into it because unlike me, Alex is kind of shy and uh, he, he's not one to, to do a lot of talking. And uh, in fact, that whole evening, I had to keep reminding him, you, you have to speak up. The judge has to hear your call. And uh, he, uh, he did well. And then uh, he thought that was pretty cool. He says, well, what else is there? And I said, well, you know, next month is the New Hampshire State Youth Championship. We went to the New Hampshire State Youth Championship and he won that one. And uh, he said, well, what else? I said, well, next month is the uh, Vermont State Youth Championship. So we went to Vermont and he won that one. And so uh, we ran out of New England State Youth Championships because not all of the New England states actually have coon hunts. And so then he said, well, what's left? And I said, geez, I don't... there's one in Delaware in November. And so we went to Delaware and he won that one. So my young son went to four state youth championships, won all four state youth championships, and then was crowned the Next Generation Spotlight Series uh, National um, Junior Division champion for that year. Well, so then he decided, well, Dad, you know, has anybody done one back-to-back? And I said, well, I, I, I don't know, son. Well, I want to try that. So we did the same thing. Now, this was in the middle of the pandemic, and so there were some events that were postponed or some that were canceled. But we managed to do the Rhode Island, the Vermont, and the uh, New Hampshire uh, State Youth Championships, and he won all of those again. Won all of those again as high-scoring dog. Um, and then we were, we were left with, well, the Delaware event was canceled for the year. Well, what are we going to do, Dad? I, I don't think I have enough points to win. You know, because he's, he's going online, he's monitoring this points race. And uh, so I said, well, there's one in Maryland. So we drove down to Maryland, and he won the Maryland one. So he went to four more state youth championships, this time as a senior division participant, and won that, uh, that division championship last year. So two years ago, he was the junior division champion. Last year, he was the senior national champion. And um, this year, uh, Alan and Trevor did a great job there at Autumn Oaks, and they brought him, him and the junior champion up on stage and actually helped allowed them to help draw the dogs out and, you know, gave him his trophy and whatnot. And of course, he's got a, a jacket that, uh, you know, I think it's got a hood on it, but it can't hardly get over his head, Steve, you know, because uh, he's uh, he's pretty <laughs> proud of himself. Well, well, uh, he should be. And what a, a really outstanding young man. I was very privileged to meet him there as you brought him by the booth at, at the vendor barn there. and. Uh, uh, of course, I expected nothing less. A uh, really sharp, clean cut, uh, uh, you know, polite young man, and I know you're very, very proud of him. Um, 
And I'm sure that are you one of those like uh, soccer moms and all when you go to the lacrosse games? Are you out there yelling at the, what do they call it in re, lacrosse? Is it a referee or a umpire or what do they have? Yeah, yeah, they have referees. And uh, <laughs> my uh, my youngest uh, uh, Brennan uh, started first, and uh, yeah, I was uh, I was one of those obnoxious dads, and then uh, <laughs> and then I realized. Well, quite frankly, I realized that those kids aren't listening to us and neither the referee. So you're just wasting your voice and, uh, and they've got enough people coaching them. So yeah, yeah, um, I do have, my wife and I do have the collapsible wagon to, to haul our folding chairs and our coolers and everything else around when we go to these tournaments. But, uh, yeah. I try to, uh, I try, it's hard, but I try to, uh, you know, keep my mouth shut during those <laughs> events. Well, I remember those days, my son played basketball and yeah. he went to a small school, you know, and we had to have, we weren't really in a, a public school conference. So we had to travel all over the state of, uh, Michigan, actually, you know, on Tuesdays and Friday nights. And we were all in a gym somewhere, uh, every week. And, uh, you know, I was uh, reminded that I needed to sit down and sure. be quiet and watch the game from my spouse because, uh, you know, I was getting quite uh, involved. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but those are great times and you need to enjoy them. And I know you do because they just don't last long enough for sure. Well, let's talk about a little bit before we go into some other things about this dog, you know, this dog that's doing all this winning and, and the background on your hounds that led up to this, this dog. Uh, tell me about that. Yeah. So, um, I actually had a, a coon dog that was uh, stolen off the chain uh, my senior year of college. And, um, at the time, you know, well, of course I was heartbroken that I lost the dog. Um, but I also knew that, uh, well, I don't know where I'm going to go. You know, I'm going to graduate and somebody's going to offer me a job somewhere and, you know, geez, that'll probably mean an apartment. So I got out of coon hunting and, um, for, geez, it was probably six years, six, eight years. And then, uh, my young wife, um, heard me talking about it, you know, once we got married and uh, we moved to the country and she made the mistake of saying, geez, boy, this coon hunting seemed like a be a big part of your life. You should get back into that. <laughs> and, and I said, wow, um, you know, there's not a lot of wives that would say that. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> I, I said, geez, the, you know, the way I used to be, I probably needed a support group, you know, at one time I said, you're, you're not sure what you're asking. Let's do an intervention here. <laughs> That's right. But, uh, she convinced me to do that. And so I got, uh, I reached out to an old family, uh, that I'd owned, uh, you know, that I hunted with back in the day and they still had some Walker dogs and I got an old Walker female to kind of get started and then, uh, was looking for a young dog to train. And, um, that was actually, um, the first time I met Joe Newland, I went to the, one of the, it might've been the first, first or second Hoosier True Dog Alliance banquet. And, um, which when I was, uh, also getting ready to start, I had the concept of tailgate adventures and, you know, how I would do it in sponsorship and kennel sponsorship. And I was talking to Joe Newland about that. And, um, you know, he said, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm interested in being part of this. And, uh, I said, well, geez, you know, one of the things I need, I guess, is a coon dog. <laughs> I said, I got this, uh, I got this old grade hound and she'll tree a coon, but you know, I'm not sure how much longer that'll work. And he had this young dog and Joe, of course, um, raised a lot of clover bred dogs. And he had this young dog that he called boom that, uh, 
was sold as a pup and somebody had him and um, he was an over the road uh, trucker and just couldn't take care of the dog and brought it back and it hadn't had a whole lot of time in, in the woods. And uh, Joe and I went out and tried this dog and, and Steve, he had a phenomenal voice. I mean, it, it made your head hurt next to the tree. <laughs> um, his name was Boom and uh, I bought Boom uh, from Joe that evening and uh, him and I actually became really good friends, hunting buddies, and we spent a lot of time hunting together. And so I had Boom, and then after I got him running real well, I decided that I wanted to raise a litter. And so I needed a, a female uh, to breed to. And of course, you know, again, I took that hiatus from coon hunting, but, you know, back in the day when I coon hunted, you know, um, uh, Lipper, you know, was, was big, you know, and everybody, you know, had a, a house dog. And I said, and I hunted a lot of uh, Lipper stock at the time, and I said, geez, you know, that's what I would like. And of course, um, you know, Whitey, was out of a female that was out of Lipper. And Joe and I would argue, I said, you know, that voice is Lipper voice. You know, that's, that's what you're hearing in those dogs. And so I got a female um, that was out of uh, um, Kate, which was Lipper semen stud dog, and uh, brought her back to the kennel and uh, raised and trained her and then had a litter of pups. And, uh, geez, you know, I actually sold all of them. In fact, I had a female for sale and somebody came to try her out and I had my male pup with us that night and those dogs were split trained at seven, eight months old. And that guy talked me out of my young male dog and I sold him too. And, uh, my second litter, um, was actually about the time my careers moved me around some and I was relocating to North Carolina and, uh, I had the, uh, the first litter was a planned litter, Steve. And the, the second litter, my next door neighbors were watching the dogs while we were look, house hunting down in North Carolina. And that female was in heat. And I told him, I said, you know, uh, be careful. You know, don't let those dogs out of the kennel. And uh, I got a phone call frantic from the next door neighbor one evening. And he says, boom, is in that female's kennel, Dave. I said, well, how did he get in the kennel? I said, there, it's a chain link kennel. And he said, uh, well, he put a hole through that kennel, Dave. I said, well, well, put him in the other kennel. He says, Dave, he put a hole in that kennel. I said, because I had three kennels. I said, well, there wasn't even a dog in the other kennel. You know, what was he doing? He goes, I think he got going so fast <laughs> once he went through the first kennel that he plowed through the second kennel. That dog had cuts all over his face from where he just stuck his nose to that chain link fence and worked it and worked it and worked it. And of course, he bred that female a second time, which I, I wouldn't call it an accident because they were intended to have another litter. I just, the timing was terrible. Right. So I ended up moving the dogs in the kennel to my parents' house in Northern Indiana while I was settling in, in North Carolina and quite, I needed to build a barn in a, in a kennel for the dogs. And so I kept asking my dad, I said, Hey, you know, I wasn't there, but I'm pretty sure that female, her name was color. Um, since I hunted mostly clover dogs, this blanket back female um had a was, was dark and somebody said that was a lot of color in your for your kennel dave and i said too much color probably and so that became her name so it was boom and color and uh so i kept asking my dad i said dad i said is, is she showing um you know because she's got to be showing by now to, if she's pregnant and he's like i don't know you know maybe i i think you know yeah she looks a little big so I've got a, another friend in town that's a coon hunter and he's a farm boy. You know, I'm like, well, he'll know for sure. Right. So I send him over and I said, tell me if that female is bred or not. And he called me up and with the same story, Steve, it says, yeah, you know, she's 
got a little weight on her. I, I think, you know, she's, yeah, she's probably pregnant. <laughs> Steve, two weeks later, she had 12 puppies. <laughs> and I said, you two guys are fired. <laughs> I said, this dog had 12 puppies. She had oh to be as big God. as a house. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and it was funny. You gotta be a dog man, Dave. You gotta be a dog. You gotta be a dog man. And so, um, my dad sent me a picture of this litter and they were a bunch of blanket back puppies with this one open spotted one that had half a white face, just like his daddy. And I said, that's the one, that's the one right there. And so, uh, he was the biggest pup in the litter and the neighbor that was watching him was name was John. And so as a play on words, I named that pup little John. Mm-hmm. And uh, little John got started um, in a pen in North Carolina, because as you know, there's not a lot of coon in North Carolina. Um, boy, I thought it was bad when I was down there until I moved to New England. Boy, what, I wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't give for those woods now. But um, he was started in North Carolina. Basically, we finished him out in Indiana because we moved to Indiana with our job. And I uh, started competition hunting him. I took him to three hunts, and he won his cast in three hunts and made night champion. Um, one of those was actually Walker days, Saturday night at Walker days. I scored 1,025 and placed him second and that made him a night champion. That was, uh, well, I guess that was four years ago now. Um, it was in, um, Auburn, Indiana. And, um, then we put him on hold because once again, my career, you know, moved me again and we moved out here to Connecticut. And so he got laid up from competition hunting, uh, for about another year and a half. And then uh, we brought him out here. Of course, that's when my son was hunting him. And uh, my son put four wins on him that year and told me that I owed him the other four. And so I put the other four wins on him and made him a Grand Knight champion. Um, And then uh, the following year, uh, had some more success. Of course, my son uh, won four more youth state championships with him. But uh, And he said, well, we wanted to get him ready for tournament of champions. So I needed five wins. And he says, Dad, you owe me a win. So I took him to Autumn Oaks. Uh, last year, not this past year, but last year, and made the Grand 16 with them. Um, so I'm not one, well, geez, to be honest with you, I'm not, I don't hunt hard enough to be a, a serious competition hunter. Um, you know, I hunt, you know, two to three nights a week when convenient, and, uh, you know, my dogs stay in shape, but they're not in prime shape, but but that dog's done, you know, well for himself, so. Well, he sounds like a great hound, and, and it's a great story there as well. You know, um, Dave, we're talking about where you live and uh, Connecticut, you know, and I did a little research. I always do my research, uh, and I know that Connecticut borders Massachusetts to the north. Is that right? See That's how correct. My, okay. And then Rhode Island to the east. Yes. And Long Island Sound to the south. Correct. And then New York, not the city perhaps, but New York to the West, right? So you're sandwiched in there. You're in a tremendous population center, right? You got a lot of people there. And actually, in land area, though, you're the third smallest state in the country. That's what, uh, thanks to Wikipedia or or whatever. So uh, the state is only 100 miles wide at its widest point. And it's 70 miles from the northernmost part to the southernmost point. So that's not a lot of land, but you've got a bazillion people up there, right? So, you know, what, what 
What was the thought process that you went through? Of course, I know my dad always said, and I've said it on this podcast, you got to follow the money, right? Right. So your job, I'm sure, is what brought you there. But what what was that thought process going into that? And, and then once you got there, I mean, how do you, to be honest with you, how do you have the nerve <laughs> to hunt <laughs> up there? Uh, kind of tell me about that experience. Yeah, so um... – you know, when I was looking at coming out here to work and uh, and talking to the, the pl- employer to be at the time, you know, that was one of the things that I told him was critical was that, uh, you know, I'm an outdoorsman. I'm an active hunter. Um, you know, I can't be living in the city. And and Connecticut's a little, um, I, I guess, when I, before I flew out here, I thought there wasn't going to be any woods. You know, I thought this was just going to be, you know, population center after population center. Um, but it is very rural. Um, what you have is these little towns, um, you know, a lot of them are kind of Norman Rockwell-esque, you know, type uh, little mm-hmm. villages. Um, and then outside of those, you have a lot of little subdivisions, et cetera. But then there's, a, you know, it's rolling hills. They call them mountains out here. But you, you, being from West Virginia, you wouldn't call them mountains. Um, so they're rolling hills and, you know, they're large tracts of woods, forest. And um, so I did a little bit of research and realized that a lot of those are, are state hunting lands. And, you know, geez, I'm like. I might be all right. In fact, uh, my, uh, my property here is five acres and, you know, there's a, you know, large forest, several hundred acres behind us, you know, deer and turkey traffic through our backyard. I said, you know, I, this won't be that bad, um, on the surface until I got out here and, and what I realized, well, I realized a couple things. Um, one was that, um, these tracts of land are large tracts of land, um, but they're not necessarily ideal uh, habitat. Um, they're mountainsides where they allow leasing uh, logging rights too. So a lot of this has been logged. A lot of it's pine trees. Um, there's no agriculture to, to speak of. You know, I people uh, from back in Indiana can't even fathom this. I said, look, I got to drive an hour to find a cornfield. You know, and, and that's a, that's a true story. Um, so it, it's. It's lots of forest, which I thought was okay when I came out here, and then I quickly realized there's just not very many raccoon, you know, in these woods. Um, you'll find more black bear and more porcupine in the woods than you find raccoon. Wow. The other thing I realized is that, uh, you know, there's some there's some anti-hunters out here. There's a lot of people, much more liberal than conservative-minded people out here. Um, hasn't been a lot of pressure from that, to be honest with you, but... Um, complete ignorance when it comes to um, coon hunting and what the heck I'm doing at night. So about once a month, a police officer is called on me, you know, and, um, <laughs> and God bless them. You know, the, 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 what you hear is not that they're complaining about the hunting, but they see a pickup truck at night or lights and they're just convinced some hiker has been injured. You know, somebody out bird watching got injured. <laughs> and, uh, so it's, it's the same song and dance, you know, a police officer wants to know what I'm up to and I have to spend a half hour and then, um, out here it's not a DNR, it's a, it's with deep, uh, department of environmental protection. So you got to wait for the deep officer to show up to say, yes, he's legitimately a hunter. And yes, this sport allows you to hunt at night. And so again, nobody means any ill will. Again, I, I haven't really ran into an anti-hunter. Um, but I've learned that if my dogs get anywhere near a subdivision, um, I hit that little button that uh, tones their collar so that they turn around and come back because it's just, you know, it's more trouble than it's worth. So that's been a challenge. Um, and then training dogs. I've got a young dog out here I'm trying to train now, and it's, uh, you know, it, it's hard to, to train a young dog when you're only going to treat one raccoon a night. <laughs> and, yeah. it might be a, and it might be a mile from the truck, 
you know. He long since learned, you know, lost interest in whatever John was up to, you know, before they came to that tree. I got you. Well, that that presents a whole different view than what I expected because I thought maybe you had just little patch woods surrounded by subdivisions or whatever that you're hunting. So, but actually, there is quite a bit of territory, just not good territory, not good habitat. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah. I remember hunting in Michigan. You know, and of course, I, I've come to call it the coon zoo you know but right. i you know more and more uh the territory that i hunted there west of kalamazoo was shrinking uh, urban sprawl was taking its toll uh, i there was one uh game warden that w- was a a lady uh, her name was julie if she's listening to this she'll uh probably remember that crazy coon hunter because that's what she called me every time she'd see me coming out of the woods she'd go ah oh, it's a crazy coon hunter again <laughs> but she checked me so many times that i told her one night i said julie we got to stop meeting like this people are going to talk you know <laughs> <laughs> sure but anyway uh i i just envisioned it being a nightmare really to try to t- uh, to turn the dog loose up there i looked at you know I read an article that concerned me. It was in a Hartford newspaper, and it was about that there's a lot of public land in uh, Connecticut, but that uh, a lot of it or most of it is open to hunters. And this writer, this was an op-ed piece, and it was saying, you know, this has got to change, that there are so few hunters in the state, and they have access to all this land. And I got to looking at that, and it does appear that the number of hunters in Connecticut is decreasing. Uh, Back in 1986, there was about 15,000 licensed uh, or firearms hunters. Now, do you actually have have to have a license on your firearm itself up there? You you do not. um, You do have to have either a permit to conceal— so a pistol permit mm-hmm. to buy ammunition, regardless of the ammunition. Um, the only other option is that you can get a long gun permit, but the process of getting a long gun permit is the same as getting a permit to conceal, so you might as well do that. Um, so you can hunt, and you don't have to have a permit per se for your twenty two rifle, your 12-gauge shotgun, but you can't buy ammunition for it unless you've gotten a permit to still allow you to buy the ammunition. I got you. Well, we, uh, you know, I have a good friend uh, uh, named Adam Dean that lives in England and uh, about 30 miles south of London there. And uh, we correspond a lot together uh, or back and forth. And he's in the process, and it's about a year-long process, of trying to get uh, a license to hunt with a shotgun uh, Mm. and hunt birds over there. So, unfortunately, uh, back to this thing about the number of licensees, apparently in 2016, there were only 10,000 firearms. What this article said, firearms uh, licenses. So I'm I'm guessing they're saying that people that want to hunt with a firearm to buy a hunting license, that number's decreasing in your state. Yeah, probably like most states, you you know, your your majority of your hunters are a firearms hunting license as opposed to an archery, you know, hunting license because we have both out here. 
Um, so that's probably what they're referring to is the, the big number that they're looking at is firearms, and that has decreased drastically out here. Yeah. Another thing I found interesting about that article is that there had been 3,700-plus permits granted to control wildlife, and yep. that include deer, geese, beaver, coyotes, foxes, and raccoons and said it even included woodpeckers, <laughs> which I, I never saw that as, but I guess if it's destroying your home, that's a problem. But, you know, that gets back to the old thing that the antis never seem to grasp is that the hunters will control those, uh, those problems and pay the state to do it, whereby, you know, the state's going to go out and have to hire somebody in many cases to do what the, what the hunter would pay to do. So that's, that's uh, a sermon for another day, I guess. But, uh, well, overall, I mean, uh, your, your uh, impression of hunting out there, is it worth it? Is it worth the effort? It's, um, it's a passion of mine. Um, yeah, there, there are nights, you know, that, uh, that I don't, well, like you said, you know, the coon zoos of, uh, Southern, uh, Michigan and Northern Indiana, um, you would be really hard pressed unless it was January or February to cut a dog loose and not hear a bark, you know, mm-hmm. um, much less not tree a few coon. And, um, there's times you turn a dog loose out here and, you know, you don't hear a bark. Well, there just, there aren't any raccoon in that particular, uh, you know, property. Um, and they migrate, you know, because uh, again, we don't have the crops to hold them in any one area. Right. And so they'll move around depending on whether or not there is corn or raspberries or wild cherries. Um, so what you treat coon in, the woods you treat coon in, you know, this summer, you know, you could turn loose there a few months later and not get a peep out of your dogs. So yeah, that wears on you. Um, but I love the spending of time with my dogs. I love spending the time with the young dogs and training them. And, um, of course the, the deer hunting and the coon hunting is one of the, you know, the great hobbies that I get to spend, you know, with my boys. And so, um, you know, yeah, I, I will, I will deal with all the negative aspects of trying to, you know, hunt game here in new England, if nothing else to spend that quality time in the woods with my boys. Well, I think that's, uh, basically what we all do, you know, when, I made the decision, you know, retired and I got the cabin in the mountains of North Carolina. I knew it wasn't the best coon hunting, certainly, and you mentioned that earlier about North Carolina hunting, and it was a little too rugged for my age. <laughs> but I did still do it, you know, and, mm-hmm. and with the help of an ATV and and all, and uh, enjoyed it all the same, uh, just uh but it was a far cry from what I had had in Michigan, you know, before moving down there. And then and then deciding to also live in Florida, and then that compounded the whole thing even more because of uh, it's, just, it's very difficult here to find a place to hunt as well. Right. I mean, we don't have a lot of public land. And I'll get on my soapbox just a minute if you'll indulge me, Dave. Uh, my good friend Gary Langford down here is the president of PK, the PKC State Association. And Gary has worked so hard, really. And he asked me to tag along on, on all these meetings that he goes to and all because he knows that I have some experience in that area. But this guy can't take anything away from Gary. I mean, he's tenacious. I call him a bulldog. You know, when he gets a hold of something, he won't let go of it. But he's been trying to get some of these state 
wildlife management areas open to coon hunters. And just recently, we had worked, I think I attended three meetings with him for an area just north of me here, about 70 miles, uh, called Gulf Hammock Wildlife Management Area. And this is one of those deals where a private company, a timber company, owns the property, but they let the state manage it as a public hunting area. And the deer doggers down here, we still hunt with dogs down here in Florida, and God bless them. I'm glad they can do that. One of the few states where that's still possible. But the hunters there have gotten used to having that uh, management area pretty much to themselves. And when we petitioned uh, the state, and then they thought that we should uh, survey the the members and it's a membership thing you have to pay into it to to be able to hunt there even though it is a quote unquote state wildlife management area but uh you know they petitioned those members and guess what they said no we no. don't want those nighttime dog hunters in here wow. now you know to me that is incredibly i don't i want to be kind here but i i guess the nicest word i can think of is selfish how selfish can we be and how short-sighted can we be because all of us are in this thing together and there isn't enough of us to start a war with the general population in the state of Florida. We're getting 900 new people moving into Florida every day. Wow. And, and many of these people are coming from states where deer dog hunting is unheard of. You know, if they have hunting at all, it would be still hunting or bow hunting for deer. And to certainly hunt them with a dog, if you don't understand the sport, doesn't seem right to these people. So, you know, as this voting block increases, these guys are going to need allies. Right. And guess right. what? It's going to be crickets from the coon hunting, hog hunting, <laughs> squirrel hunting community when when it's their turn to try to beat the wolf away from the door. Am right. I right? I mean, do you, does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, and, and again, that was, that was the, one of the reasons for the national hound and tree dog association is these guys hunting squirrel with cur dogs, the, the deer hunters with hounds, the coon hunters, the rabbit hunters with beagles. Um, you know, collectively we've got some decent numbers and we absolutely have got to stand in lockstep against the anti hunters because if not, they will divide and conquer us one by one. You know, the big game hunters are experiencing that right now. Absolutely, they are. And, you know, there's been an episode up in Vermont there north of you, Vermont, uh, where, where, you know, there's been a lot of publicity on YouTube and all about a landowner that was, uh, you know, accosted some coon hunters and, and a bear hunter and so forth and on it goes. But, um, well, I'll get off the stump. But I won't I won't forget the message because uh, I once said, you know, or Dr. Al Stinson up in Michigan said, we talk for those who can't talk for themselves, and that's our dogs. And so uh, anyway, I wanted to move into one other area. Sure. Okay, you and I talked about this just a little bit. Uh, you've had a lot of success in life, Dave. You uh, certainly have... Uh, climbed the corporate ladder, you've got a beautiful family, you've been successful as a hunter, you've been an entrepreneur, you're an organizer, a negotiator, I know. Uh, 
there's been perhaps in the uh, TV show and maybe a little bit in the Tree Dog or the Tree Dog Association, what have been some of the downsides for you? And I'm going to share some of mine in this conversation. Yeah, so um, I think, uh, you know, uh, downside or lessons learned, uh, one would be with the TV show. You have to be careful to not destroy your passion. You know, Joe and I, um, you know, really wanted, um, we early realized we're not going to be famous. Right? We're not movie stars. There's nobody going to pay us to be on television. You know, again, we, we quickly realized we had to pay to be on television. So it wasn't about that. It was a, a, a means of, we thought if we promoted the sport, it would help protect it. It would increase awareness. But we spent all of our time traveling around, hunting with other people and filming coon hunts. Um, while we were doing that, our dogs were just sitting in the kennels, getting fat and lazy. And, um, that was one of the, that, I guess that was another factor is that we made coon hunting, which was our passion, our job. Mm. And when our, when our passion becomes our job, then you start disliking it and, and you get burned out on it. And there for a while, even after the television show was over, um, it took me a while to, I was, it was a struggle to get back into coon hunting um, not that I wasn't, not that I was under any pressure when it was just me and the dog out there, you know, hunting. Um, but mentally I just felt different about the sport. Um, it was, it just became too much work. Um, because again, the TV show was about producing and filming and hosting and, and bill collecting from sponsors. And, uh, you know, that with my day job, um, emotionally I was burned out. So, um, I didn't expect that. I thought, well, geez, I can do coon hunting again, you know, not rich, but maybe I can make some money at it. Um, and that would be a great thing. It turned out to be just the opposite. I, I nearly ruined, you know, my passion for coon hunting by turning it into my job. So you have to be cautious of that. Absolutely. And what, and go ahead if you have another point. Yeah. And, you know, and, uh, set expectations that are reasonable and achievable. Um, the hound association it seemed like such a great idea, you know, bring this organization together. If you talk to individuals, you know, they all had their stories about where they lost permission to hunt this property or they put a gate up on that old road or, you know, they changed the, uh, the tether laws in town. And so everybody was individually supportive of a national organization to help protect the sport, you know, um, power in numbers. But you mentioned that, right? That you had a similar situation with, uh, with, uh, you know, with, the the organization you guys are putting together is egos sometimes get in the way. And, uh, you know, I tried to get these organizations to join me and several did, you know, God bless them for seeing, you know, the strategy and the approach and being supportive. But a lot of them that didn't come on board, um, was because they're like, well, geez, if I become part of your organization, then I will lose what I am. And, and I, I tried in, in vain at times to say, look, no, 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 no. You continue to do what you do. I simply want to be affiliated with your organization. Or I want your organization affiliated with ours. Um, but all too often, again, egos get in the way. Um, when I was working with uh, with Ralph up there at F&T's Fur Harvesters Trading Post on the TV show, he said something to me that rang true later when I was working on the Hound Association. And uh, and he was a rabbit hunter. You know, he had hounds growing up as well. And he says, Dave, you can't tell a houndsman nothing. He says, we have all of these how-to books and videos on trapping. He says, we sell them like crazy, you know? 
every trapper wants to know the new trick or a new way of doing something or, or making a set that, you know, in a different way. And, and maybe they could harvest more fur that way. They, they, they eat that up. He says, you can't hardly sell a how-to book uh, for coon hunting because every coon hunter you've ever met is an expert. They know more <laughs> than you, you know, there, there's, there's no breed better than my breed. Um, and so I guess, and you know, maybe I've been there myself, you know, you know, you, you make snide comments about anything other than a walker dog, whatever. Um, that's something we need to be cautious of because it's not just your other running hounds needing to partner with your night hunters. The coon hunters themselves got a lot of work to do to come together. And, uh, we got to make sure pride doesn't get in the way. We got to make sure biases don't get in the way. And they were actually openly willing, you know, again, to, to lock arms, be in lockstep because, uh, the enemy is not the other, the other hunters at that competition event this weekend. Um, the enemies are, you know, out there picketing the competition event this weekend. Yeah, that's for sure. Very, very well put, my friend. Well, you know, I, as we discussed this a little bit before we came on air, I, you know, I've had my, my share of successes, things that I'm proud of, and I can look back on the events that came to be and, and the numbers that were obtained, uh, attained over the years and all of those sort of things. But there were disappointments for me, too. And I think the greatest disappointment was with the AKC uh, adventure that I took there. And I, and I did that because I was nearing retirement. I knew that. I could see uh, the light at the end of the tunnel. And for once, it seemed not to be an oncoming train. <laughs> and <laughs> But, you know, I, I too, uh, share what you said about, you know, your passion uh, becoming your job. And uh, there was constantly that balancing act for me down through the years and, and through a lot of years, uh, for sure. Uh, you know, and when I was asked to go to the AKC, right away I, th I knew that that would be a very, very steep hill to climb because the AKC had had a uh, coonhound program before and, and had had some successes. They had a world hunt in London, Ohio, uh, back in the 90s, it drew 500 dogs, and that wasn't too shabby, you know. Nope. Uh, they bought out the ACHA, and right away, you know, the AKC and the ACHA uh, boards kind of uh, were at loggerheads, and and so basically uh, AKC kept the registry, and ACHA formed a new registry they called the World Tree Dog Association, I believe was the name of it. But at any rate, so when they asked me to come there, I was at PKC and very happy. Uh, probably some of the most fun times I ever had in my whole career or our, our life with hounds was the PKC and especially the world hunts at Aurora, Kentucky. And I'm going to do a podcast about that in the future because that was the pinnacle for me of fun in the sport of coon hunting. But at any rate, uh, when they asked me to come to the AKC, I told them, I said, man, you're, you, you know, you really, you kind of lost the goodwill of the coon hunter because of not taking care of their registrations and things like that. And they said, well, we want to do better. You know, we want to do the job right this time. We believe that you can help us do that. So when I went there and, and brought in some of my buddies that I knew were good, hardworking, uh, excellent coonhound men, men of high moral character, just 
you know, kind of guys I wanted to buddy around with. And, man, we jumped in and we did really made a splash. We had like 30 events a year when I came in. And not it wasn't very long. We were up to 2,500 events scheduled. Wow. You know, and it, it was just going gangbusters. But, you know, people in high places sometimes <laughs> don't make the right decisions. And that pause bill came along. Pups. Mm. Uh, uh, it was the uh, I can't remember what they called it. It was uh, 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 animal welfare bill, and it was designed to regulate uh, these dogs coming in from overseas, uh, inferior dogs sold on the internet, and it was supposed to regulate that. But right away, the Humane Society of the United States supported it, so that put AKC in bed with the HSUS. And in the minds of the coon hunters, <laughs> that was not the perfect marriage. So, right, right. you know, right away when we had all the momentum in the world going and we brought in sponsors like Remington and, and Garmin and these major companies, uh, the board just knocked the wind out of us with that pause bill. And uh, our our competitors uh, readily took uh, took up the cause, you know, and uh, and we had to battle that, you know. Every club that we talked to, we were uh, asked about that. So, you know, in time, over time. But hey, listen, part of the of the that equation was the fact that AKC put a lot of money into coon hunting. They mm-hmm. really did. And uh, but the coon hunters didn't reciprocate. They didn't register their, lit- their litters with uh, AKC. And in the registry business, and I've seen registries come and go. And I could we could start a list here. Uh, right. You've got to have registrations. You've got to have a foundation for your business. It's in those puppies. That's where it is. You can give all the money in the world away, and the coon hunters will come and hunt for it. But uh, tomorrow they'll go looking for uh, the next rainbow. And if you don't build a foundation and registrations and get those puppies coming in and then those transfers of those ownerships and, and that Fred Miller taught me that years ago and it's never left me. So anyway, the coon hunters didn't do their part by right. saying, okay, AKC, we appreciate what you're doing for coon hunting. We're going to register our dogs with us. But then you can hit the ball back in the other court and say, well, they were paying for something they already had with the established registries. They had outstanding pedigrees with UKC and PKC. So that was a disappointment to me. It will always be a disappointment to me that that program didn't carry forward and go forward. But there were a lot of victories that I like to think about when old guys like me sit around and think about the past. So, and I know that you, have to be proud of of how far you came. You know, you were an innovator in the TV world for coon hunting. You're an innovator in the National Association for Tree Dog uh, Enthusiasts. So uh, we take the good with the bad, and hopefully the good outweighs the bad. Don't you think so? I totally agree, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't mean to get on that stump either, but here we are (laughs) an hour and 13 minutes into our podcast, and I'd like to kind of keep them at about an hour. Dave, it's been great to have you with me today, and and the only thing that we need to do now is to go hunting together. Yeah, yeah. uh, Yeah. 
So uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's either you come to Florida <laughs> or the mountains of North Carolina or I come to Connecticut. I don't know. Is that a toss-up, you think? That's probably a toss-up. I guess if we wanted to treat coon, we'd probably better off meeting it in the middle. That's right. Do you still have any spots, those old spots back in northern Indiana? Oh, for, in northern Indiana, for sure. Yeah. I've, yeah. Uh, you know, I grew up in a small town, a small farming community, and uh, I go back there pretty regularly. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm well-remembered. And of course, those farmers want those coon gone whenever I get oh, back in absolutely. town. Absolutely. Well, looking on these map programs that we have nowadays and all, I, I check in and I see that those same landowners that I used to hunt on in Michigan are still there. So I kind of think they'd let me. Uh, I did a chapter in my book called Christmas Cookies. And it was all about paying back to the landowners, you know, mm-hmm. and how important the landowners are. So I always tried to, you know, nurture those relationships. And I believe if I went and knocked on the door, they'd probably say, yeah, get those coon. You know how many coon I killed in my silage last year or in my barn? Yep. And so yep. uh, one of them used to say when he'd come to the door, oh, it's that coon hunter again. Go get him, he'd say. Yep, yep. <laughs> Well, Dave, it's been a delight to have you on, and uh, maybe next time we can bring Alex on to let him talk about that youth program, give us some insight on what the future is going to be. But uh, I certainly wish you the best in your endeavors up there, and uh, uh, keep us posted on what's going on up in there. I I noticed when I was uh, uh, looking up your state, it's called the uh, Land of Steady Habits. (laughs) <laughs> and that means that everything is above board up there. Everybody's of high moral character, at least they used to be. And so I want to come up there and, and uh, uh, experience some of that from my own, but, uh, on my own. But I do deeply appreciate you coming on. And, uh, and unless you've got something else, I'm just going to tell our listeners that I've gone to the dogs uh, with a Connecticut Yankee.